We'll start from Luke chapter 1, verse 57, and we'll go through to the end of the chapter. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her a great mercy, and they shared in her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signals to the father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was open, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout all the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. All who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he had said through his prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him, all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege of a day of rest, a day to worship you. Our God, I pray that you would reveal to us the true miracle of your Son, that we would be astonished, that we would come to be reverent, that we would marvel the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth and became a man that we might have forgiveness of sins, that he came to die for us. God, I pray that you would make your word clear. As Pastor Mark Miller says, despite the inability and the sin of the preacher. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open and follow along with me uh, as we look at this passage together. Uh, some of you know me, I, I see a lot of new faces, uh, I worked here for a little while, and while I worked here, there's a man who attends this church, uh, who I came to know very well, and I always knew he was strong, uh, he was a mechanic, he would shake his hand and you knew he could crush it if he wanted to, uh, but I came to really know how strong he was when my wife decided that she wanted a piano. And she found one, and we went to go pick it up, and we were unloading it from the truck, and I lost my footing, and this man leaned back, held up the piano by himself, 
and said, John, just get your footing. I'll just wait right here. I'm not the kind of person you want to move a piano with. <laughs> but that day, I came to really understand how strong he was. I feel like sometimes as we go through life uh, as kids, our parents tell us things but, it's, things, but at some point, somewhere in our 20s, we realize our parents actually knew what they were come, talking about. We kind of sort of knew it in the back of our mind. But we come to really understand that they knew what, what they were talking about. My hope in this passage, I believe Zechariah always knew the greatness of God. He knew that he was meant to worship God. He knew that Scripture talked about God fulfilling his promises. But in this passage, we see him come to really know that God had fulfilled his promise. He came to really start to really understand and it sank in what God's mercy was, what God's salvation is. And his response was worship. Here, the birth of John points to the coming of Christ. And this reveals God's mercy and salvation. And I encourage you, our response should be wonder, astonishment, reverence, and worship. I come with nothing innovative, nothing new, nothing surprising, except we are called to worship our God in spirit and in truth. So let's look at this passage together. Uh, the context, for hundreds of years, God had been silent. He had not spoken to His people through a prophet. The book of Luke kind of gives a tiny peek at the many people who were eagerly waiting for God's redemption, for better days, for God's presence among His people. But imagine the fact that God had been silent for longer than the United States has been a country. God had not spoken to His people. And yet you have Mary, no older than a kid, but she knew God's Word as we see in the Magnificat. Anna and Simeon, two elderly people who are constantly in the temple waiting for God's deliverance. And here we see Zechariah and Elizabeth who were part of the priestly family serving in the temple, but they're past childbearing age. But in Luke's 1 through 2, you can flip the page back and forth and you'll see there's a pattern that when these people see God's redemption coming, see the hope of the coming Christ, they respond in a song or a prayer. And these were ordinary people, a young girl, a widow, an old man, an elderly couple who could no longer have kids that were waiting and hoping for the Lord despite the God's silence. And so the birth of John starts in chapter 1, verse 5, on to 25. And, and, and when the angel comes to Zechariah and talks about the coming John, he talks about who this son will be. Verse 14, he will be in a joy and a delight to you. Verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from verse from birth, I'm sorry. Verse 16, he will bring back to the he will bring back Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people for the Lord. This angel appeared to Zechariah and promised that he was going to have a son. And Zechariah said, how can this be? And as a result, he has to be silent. And yet, Zechariah's silence is broken. And the first thing he says, after months of not speaking, possibly not hearing, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. But sandwiched between part one of John's birth where he is promised in part two, is Luke chapter 1, verse 24 to 38. And the birth of Jesus is foretold. 
in this passage, but also just their lives, the lives of John and Jesus, were intertwined forever. You see, John, even in his birth, pointed to the Savior. And so we're just going to look at the two parts, first verses 57 to 66, which is John's birth story, and the response that it causes the people around them, the reverence, the amazement, the awe, and then Zechariah's response of worship. So let's start with verses 57 to 66. John's birth causes amazement, wonder, reverence. This son was promised beforehand, but it's interesting that Luke uses the same language for the promise of the son as when we hear it fulfilled. Look at verse 13. Elizabeth, chapter 1, 13. Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. That's what the angel said that they were meant to do. But look at verses Verse 57, when the boy is actually born. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And at the beginning of this passage, Zechariah, the dad, is absent. Now, in a bit, we'll see him affirming the name of John because he's deaf and mute. But he's not somehow, the way the Luke portrays this, he's not sharing in this moment. But Why? His response before when the angel had said, you will have this child, he will say, how will I know this? Because my wife and I are old. And yet, I understand that response. Mary later, when she's, at, she's told that she will have a child, she says, how will this be? And yet, even though he's been mute and deaf, Elizabeth and John demonstrate obedience when it's time to name the child. They will, he will be, his name will be John. It's not his father's name. It's not a family name. And in verse 60, Elizabeth decisively reject, emphatically rejects the idea of calling him any other name but John, which means God has been gracious. God has shown favor. And with this step of obedience, his mouth is open. Luke says immediately he begins to speak. And the first thing out of his mouth is blessing God, which suggests to me that this is what he thought about during those silent months. The time of silence caused him to pause and think. And seeing God fulfill his promise resulted in praise. He didn't know what else to do but worship God. And it's amazing. If you look, the neighbors and relatives who came in verse 58 and verse 50, in verse 66, they wonder, they, they have fear, they have reverence about it, which is the same language that's used of Mary Later on in chapter 2, when she pondered these things in her heart. Later on, this same will be used to describe the ministries of Jesus and John in chapters 3 and chapters 5 to describe the response of the people when they see the ministry of these two men. And the people standing around, when they see John being bored, they say, born, what then is, will this child go, what is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. God is actively present in these events and Luke is inviting us to ponder with these people. What then is this child going to be? You read this miracle, and we're meant to ponder. We're meant to think. We're meant to be amazed. We're meant to have reverence. And Zechariah's response even goes beyond that. It goes into worship. It goes into a benediction. The song reaches back to the Old Testament prophets in verse 70. Here we're going to look at verses 66 to 79. It reaches back to the Old Testament, and it's described as a spirit-inspired prophecy. As you read chapter 1, it's beautiful how much the Holy Spirit 
uh, is involved in, in, in this chapter. Uh, when when uh, the boy is promised in verse 15, uh, the angel says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Verse 41, when Elizabeth and Mary see one another, Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary and the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Zechariah starts his song. And the first word shows that it's meant to be a benediction or a blessing. Now, we do a benediction oftentimes at the end of the service, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a pastor to the congregation. And it points back to when the priest would say it to the people of Israel. My question is, why would God want or accept our blessing, our worship? The closest I can come to it is the idea of a little boy bringing a dandelion to his mother. It's a weed. And yet, this expression of love, this expression of a little boy thinking about his mother, means the world to her. And she will take this weed that in any other circumstance she would pull out of a yard and she doesn't want it alive. She would put it in a vase with some water because it's an expression of love. Our worship, our blessing, our, our, our songs, our, our, our acts of worship are our filthy rags. And yet God desires our worship. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so this is the appropriate response. This is the proper response. Not only that, this is the response for which we were made. We were made to worship. And nothing else will fulfill it. It's amazing. If you look back to the Psalms, blessed be the Lord God was a common way of introducing thanksgiving. Psalm 41, 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen, amen. Psalm 72, blessed be the, his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Psalm 106, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. In each of these cases, the verse ends the psalm of God with his people, and this is worship. Zechariah is reflecting this. He is praising, glorifying, blessing God for what? For the birth of his son? Though part of the priestly family, his whole life, I think, Zechariah finally had some quiet time to realize who God is what God has done, that God has kept his promise. And if you look at this, most of his praise, most of his worship, some of it reflects his son, but most of it is God through history, who God is. That's the center of his worship, of his thanks. This son is just reminding him of the eternal truth of who God is. And I'll just highlight two things really quickly just to end this. The first one is God's mercy. He talks about God's tender mercy in verses 72 and 78. In verse 49, Mary speaks of the mercy and magnificent things that characterize the mighty one. In verse 58, Luke reports that the Lord had magnified his mercy to Elizabeth. That's what the, the neighbors see, and they rejoice with her. Verse 72, God's mercy is the purpose of salvation. There it's supposed to be causative. So God saves his people in order to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us. You see, the mercy of God, and this is reflecting the Psalms, 
uh, is often translated in the Psalms as steadfast endurance. And it, it's shown to individuals, it's shown to God's people, but it's meant to show who God is. For example, in Psalm 51, when David is, is uh, asking God for forgiveness, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. In Psalm 66, God has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love, his mercy from me. This is a prevalent theme in the Old Testament, and it's being reflected in this song. And Zechariah realizes that salvation is rooted in God's tender mercy. And the reality is Abraham did not deserve God's mercy. He was married to a woman, and two times in chapter 12 and chapter 20 of Genesis, he pimps her out lack of a better word. God's people, the nation of Israel, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you constantly see them failing. They did not deserve God's mercy. The purpose, we are meant to realize the depth of our depravity and, depravity and realize we do not deserve God's mercy. And yet, God offers it to us, not because of who we are, but because of who He is. Zechariah roots God's salvation in who He is. God is merciful from everlasting to everlasting through history, and he's shown it to us today, Zechariah says. And also God's salvation. You see, John was the forerunner of the Lord, a prophet. And so their lives are woven together. There had been a prophet in Israel for a long time, but John couldn't save anyone. His purpose was to point to something outside himself. He told God's people of salvation. He pointed them toward the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. And what we see in salvation, again, is that its purpose is worship. The language of salvation echoes back to the story of Exodus. And here in our passage today, verses 71 and 74 point back to Psalm 106. And all Psalm 106 is a song that the people of Israel sang that said, God brought us up out of Egypt. God divided the Red Sea. And it ends by saying, he saved, them from the hand, he saved us from the hands of our foes and redeemed us from the power of the enemy. And this reference in Luke 1 ends with the purpose of our salvation. Do you know why we have been saved? Do you know why you are called a child of God? Here it says, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. This points back to Exodus. God says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Exodus 7, 16. To serve and to worship. Serving yourself, your desires, will never fulfill you. With the youth group, I used to say, a cell phone will never be happy to be used as a hammer. A life in service to God brings fulfillment, and nothing else really will. The other thing, salvation here is described not only as fulfillment, but also as a visitation. It says here in verse 69, he has graciously visited his people. He has raised up a savior. In verse one, cha sorry, chapter one, verse 78, it says, the dawn from on high will visit us. Have you ever thought about the fact, I, the name Emmanuel always bothers me. God with us. Here, with the coming of John, Zechariah realizes God is with us. You see, it's constantly uses, it, it refers to the Lord throughout this passage. And, and earlier in the passage, it could be pointing just to the Old Testament Yahweh term. But
But as the passage progresses, there's a subtle shift, and suddenly God's visitation is now understood in the coming of Christ. So the title Lord is appropriate for Jesus Christ, God with us. John will go before the Lord Jesus Christ to prepare the way. So even though this passage is about the birth of John, you see in the response of Zechariah, his praise and worship of God and his response isn't just on the birth of a son. It's because the birth of a son points to something much bigger than himself, Jesus Christ. He is here to point others towards the Lord Jesus, to prepare his way. Suddenly, not only is this a prophet in the power and spirit of Elijah, but God is sending his salvation. He is sending, he is, he himself is coming. In Zechariah's song, after months of silent contemplation, upon seeing God fulfill his promise, not just to his family, but to all of God's people, all Zechariah could do is to worship God for who he is and what he has done. As I was preparing this, one, I was petrified because I knew how many pastors there were going to be in this room. But I felt like I needed to say something about Australia or something about Colombia or something about our family. But to be honest, this passage points to something much bigger than any of us or these places. Uh, you have four weeks as you prepare for the Christmas season. Buy gifts, get <coughs> trees, decorate houses, whatever else. I would ask you to take time to think in silence and marvel, wonder, be reverent. Think about what a miracle it is that Christ came. Colossians 1 talks about, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, talking about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. By him all things were created. He is the head of the body, the church. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He became a man. He became a child. He became a baby. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that, we are able to approach the throne of grace boldly through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a miracle. I would encourage you, take time to meditate on this. Take time to be amazed at what it means. I'd ask you, truly worship in your prayers, in your song, in your conversations, and in how you live your life. Like John... Let our lives constantly point to our Savior and the way we do things and the way we speak that people would not see us. They would see our Savior. John said, I must become less and he must become great. I pray that would be true for us as well. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for the birth of John. I thank you for Christmas. I thank you for time to to think and to ponder about the miracle of Jesus Christ coming to this earth. I pray that you would stir in us a desire to worship, the ability to worship in spirit and in truth. Clear our minds as we have family worship, as we meet with other families, as we see the pageant tonight, stir in us awe and amazement and wonder, and that our response would be true lives of worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.